Welcome to Orthodox.Faith. This is John Harmon. And this is Ron Bentley. Ron, this is the second of two interim episodes where we look at scenes from the Gospels. Stick with us because we're going to announce our next series where we're headed in the fall at the end of this episode. In our last episode, we considered the second chapter of John's Gospel, where Jesus turned water into wine. In this episode, we're going to look at the second chapter of Mark, where Jesus heals a man who was paralyzed. Yeah, and John, you got to pick last week's subject. This is the one that (laughs) I picked because there are some intriguing aspects to the story. The thing that everyone remembers about the particular story we're going to look at here is that there's a group of people who literally disassembled a roof to get a paralyzed man in front of Jesus. Uh The source for many a trite Sunday school literature illustration. (laughs) But there is a lot more that stands out about this story, and it revolves around how Jesus responds to the situation. It also gives us a glimpse of Mark's understated form of storytelling. Well, all right, let's go see how this story works. But first, we're going to start with the background. The Gospel of Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels. Some people look at Mark as the no-nonsense, just-the-facts version of the story of Jesus. Mark, for example, does not include an infancy narrative, like we find in Matthew and Luke, for example. And Mark lacks the extensive post-resurrection stories that we get in the three other Gospels, Matthew, Luke, and John. In fact, many scholars today are convinced that Mark was the first Gospel ever written, although it's worth noting that early Christian authorities insisted it was actually Matthew that came first. In any case, there are large portions of Mark's Greek that are recited virtually verbatim in Matthew and Luke. The scholarly game, if you will, is trying to figure out who copied whom between those three Gospels there. But there is one more important thing you ought to know about the impression certain scholars have of the book of Mark. Mark is supposed to have the lowest Christology of any of the Gospels. That's the way they say it. In other words, Mark supposedly makes the least exalted claims about Jesus. I'm not at all convinced that's true. And in fact, one of the reasons I picked this particular section is I think this demonstrates that. Mark may leave a lot implicit. He never says, like the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But that's just not Mark's style. Mark leaves it to you to read between the lines. And what Mark leaves between the lines, so to speak, can speak volumes. Mm. Yes. Mark's gospel opens with the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist. Before we get to the end of the chapter, though, we've already had the temptation of Jesus in the desert, the calling of the first disciples, an evil demon driven out, multiple people healed, an example of Jesus trying to escape crowds to pray, and a specific case of leprosy that Jesus has handled. Clearly, Mark hits the ground running. (laughs) His style is terse, but he covers a lot of ground in a hurry. Before we reach the end of chapter one, then, we know, among other things, that Jesus is, for one thing, predicted in the prophets. He's someone greater than John the Baptist. He has a significant following. He can work miracles, and 
he is teaching on a regular basis. When we enter chapter two, then we're not entirely surprised to see Jesus teaching, nor is it entirely surprising to find crowds packed so close around him that there was no way to reach him. Yeah. What we do have is a curious lack of detail about the content of what Jesus is teaching. So if we get like the Sermon on the Mount and Matthew here back in chapter one, Mark had told us that the content of what Jesus was teaching amounted to this. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Mm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. given this context in ancient Israel, and honestly, given what some of the other gospels tell us, we can surmise some of what that means. But honestly, within Mark, that's precious little to go on. And here in chapter two, we learn simply that Jesus was, quote, preaching the word. It's at this point that we get a group of people whose primary interest in Jesus is his reputation for working miracles. A group of four show up carrying a man who was paralyzed on a mat. For this group of five, the crowd is a problem. They need to get this man in front of Jesus. But they're having a difficult time because the crowd is so tightly packed in and around the house. So what do they do to solve that problem? They climb up on the roof They dig through it, and they lower the man down from the roof in front of Jesus. This probably unfolds a little bit differently from the way that we might understand it working in a modern house. (laughs) I I am curious how the mechanics of this work. Yeah, the roof area of a house was typically flat because because it was like another story onto the house. The roof area was used by a family. So getting up and down onto the roof was not a problem. It was easy to do. It was something that they did all the time. Very different from us climbing up onto our pitched roofs. Right. So that's a very dangerous proposition, probably something we shouldn't do on a regular basis. But it was just part of daily life uh, in those days. So getting up there wasn't difficult. Likewise, uh, the roofs were made of tree branches and dirt, organic material packed in so that... They didn't have to drill through anything. It didn't take a great deal of effort. They just had to do a little digging and removing of some of that material. These roofs were not, they weren't thick, and they had to be maintained all the time. The owners of a house had to be up on the roof fixing and patching all the time, especially after a rain. But it didn't rain really all that much, and it didn't snow at all. So there were no problems like many of us face as far as the way that roofs need to be constructed. Well, so you've already answered many of the silly problems that came to my mind, although I think the first and biggest was, where's the fire marshal for the crowd packed into this house? Uh, But I had to wonder, what does the owner think about this blatant vandalism of the property? Mm -hmm. Based on what you're saying, though, when this was going on, everyone in the house must be encountering stuff falling down on top of them. And I shouldn't be too surprised to think in terms of the scene being something like chaos at that point, right? (laughs) Everyone's attention would have been drawn to this as dirt and, and tree leaves and branches would have been coming down on top of them. It would have been highly disruptive to the scene. (laughs) (laughs) Well, all that silliness aside, the four men carrying the mat do succeed in their endeavors. They managed to lower the paralyzed man down in front of Jesus. And at this point, there can be no doubt what they're asking for. Jesus has a reputation for healing people. They just lowered a very sick person down in front of Jesus. What's going to happen next? 
Will Jesus congratulate them on their persistence and heal the man? Will he be angry at them for interrupting his teaching and refuse to heal the man? Hmm. He does none of this. He looks at the man and says, your sins are forgiven. And my response is, do what? Hmm. What does that have to do with anything going on here? Right. This man needs to be healed. I got to ask, is Jesus blind to the need? The man needs to be made whole. Can Jesus be that callous? There is no doubt what this man wants or what the people who brought him here are hoping for. Your sins are forgiven? Really? Is that all Jesus has to offer? <laughs> yeah, yeah, is that all? <laughs> <laughs> I, I may be stretching the question just a little bit. <laughs> well, just as perplexing is the response of some of those who are sitting around. The text identifies them as the teachers of the law. For them, it's a given that forgiving sins is something only God can do. And here sits a man in front of them claiming to forgive sins. Uh, That sounds like blasphemy, like showing contempt for God, at least in the way that they would understand that. And what's more, Jesus immediately perceives and he understands what they're thinking. Even though they're not saying it out loud, he understands what they're thinking and he calls them out on it. Yeah, and it's worth saying, I'll put blasphemy in quotes there. That was actually Mark's word for it. Showing contempt for God was the best we can try and make that mean something to a modern crowd. But I do want to remind everyone that Mark is a subtle storyteller, at least in certain ways. And much of what he has to say may well be between the lines here. And let's just enumerate what all we can read or might be able to read between the lines here. Jesus claims to forgive sins. In other words, Jesus wasn't just saying, know that God has forgiven your sins. Jesus was looking at the man and forgiving his sins. And that actually gets clear later in the story. Jesus doesn't later clarify that he was just observing what God had done. He basically asserts that if it astounds them to see him forgive sins, he can astound them other ways as well. And to make this just a little bit clearer, but still reading between the lines, Jesus claims to do what only God can do. The teachers of the law wondered who can forgive sins but God alone. Jesus didn't say, or didn't say here at least, that others can forgive sins, he just doubled down on the claim that he could do it. And Mark leaves it up to us to follow the line of thinking here. And finally, according to Mark, Jesus could perceive what others were thinking. So hold on to that thought. We're going to come back to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And as if to say, you think that's something? (laughs) You think that's incredible? Jesus turns to the man on the mat and says, get up, take your mat and go home. Finally, (laughs) finally, (laughs) Finally. (laughs) the helpless man lying before him gets what he was clearly hoping for all along. He's healed. He's made whole. He is a full participating, contributing member of society. Again, he walks out of that room on his own legs. While this might not be the first thing that struck an ancient reader, it's hard for us to read this without being struck by the apparent callousness with which Jesus addresses the man. Was Jesus just trying to make a point? Did he need this man who was paralyzed to make that point? 
how could he just leave him lying there in right. hope and, and expectation while he made a larger point about forgiving sins? How could he do that? Yeah, and what's worse, we have this strong modern bias against ever blaming the victim. And, and that's often mm. a good impulse, but it can also go too far. And in any case, Jesus stares at this helpless man before him and claims to forgive his sins. He couldn't have said more plainly, look, you messed up. <laughs> to a man who literally mm. cannot move his legs or arms. So that just begs the question, what's going on here? Yep. First, remember that Mark has told us Jesus can perceive what those around him are thinking, or at least that was implicit in what Mark has told us. It's there between the lines. We learn directly what the teachers of the law were thinking because Jesus called them out. What we do not learn is what the paralyzed man was thinking. Yeah. But we know from other parts of the New Testament that it was common to assume those who were disabled had reached that point because of sin. It's often a different gospel, but do you remember the point where the disciples questioned Jesus about the man born blind? Mm -hmm. Who sinned so that this man was born blind, the man himself or his parents? Yeah. Uh, so with that sort of perspective in mind, it's quite possible that this man lies in front of Jesus with far bigger problems than just his paralysis. He may well blame himself. He may well suffer the shame of knowing others around him blame him too. Or he may just be wondering, will Jesus know all these hidden things about me? Will that stop him from healing me? If this is the man's condition, suddenly Jesus' words make perfect sense. Jesus and the paralyzed man are conversing on a far deeper level than anyone else perceives, precisely because Jesus can peer into this man's heart the way no one else can. Now the impertinence of the teachers of the law becomes even greater. They only have theological points to make and are oblivious to what is really happening here. Hmm. I propose that only as a possibility, whether or not that's right, Clearly, something else is going on here, too. Mark does have a point to make, and it seems to be Jesus' point, too. Oddly enough, Mark leaves it to the confused, offended teachers of the law to make his point for him. They are the ones who ask, who can forgive sins but God alone? And it's as if Mark is saying, indeed, that's the question. And Jesus claims to do just that, and he has the power to do much more as well we might consider taking his claims seriously. Ron, we've been talking a little bit about the subtlety of the way that Mark right. uh, goes about his storytelling, but there's a, an item in the way that Jesus addresses this group when he performs this miracle. Just actually, as he's just about to give the man the command to take his mat, get up and, and go that is not so subtle. Okay, all right. <laughs> In fact, it's pretty, it's pretty blatant. It's his own identification of himself with the Son of Man, one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself. Oh, which on the surface we think means I'm just a human being. Yeah, yeah. It's actually, at least, at least the way I read it, it's the opposite. Mm -hmm. Because Son of Man is a title. And he says, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. So talking about himself, he right. is bringing that title to himself. He's claiming it. Well, that title, Son of Man, 
refers to, and we've talked about this elsewhere, I think, on the podcast, yeah. Ron, that refers to a figure who appears in Daniel chapter 7. Yeah. So this is an Old Testament figure who appears in a dream that Daniel has, or a night vision that Daniel has. Uh, it's Daniel 7, and he sees a figure that he calls a son of man. Right. And this is what he says about the son of man in that vision. That figure was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. And Jesus, by claiming the title son of man, is saying that figure that Daniel saw in his vision, who was given all authority, glory, and sovereign power, that is me. He claims that title outright. It is a blatant reach for the, uh, well, I guess for Jesus, it's not a reach, right, right. <laughs> but, uh, but, but a self-identification with that figure is a claim to divinity absolutely in the face of the teachers of the law. Nothing subtle about it. To recap then just a little bit, Ron, Mark, as we said earlier, is supposed to be the just the facts version of the Gospels, yeah. that, that terse version that makes the least exalted claims about Jesus, I think is the, one of the ways that you put it uh, just a few minutes ago. In popular exchanges, some people assume that the Gospel of Mark gives no support for the resurrection of Jesus and makes no divine claims on Jesus' part. Yeah. Uh, but th that's <laughs> primarily because there isn't a, a post-resurrection yeah. set of stories like we find uh, in the other Gospels. And of course, I think when it comes to divine claims, I think we just put that to rest. <laughs> I sure uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, At least preliminarily in the very words that Jesus himself uses about exactly. himself. Uh, of course, we'll We'll save the, the resurrection issue for another time. Exactly. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but the only way you can make either of those claims is to not read Mark. Yeah, uh, or, precisely. Or read it very, very haphazardly, uh, not carefully at all. Beneath the disarming simplicity of Mark's narrative lies the challenging story of an extraordinary individual that does indeed claim to be a human being doing what only God can do. This is crystal clear in the account of Jesus healing the man who was paralyzed. In a stroke of genius, Mark leaves it to the antagonists <laughs> to point the way for those who may otherwise miss where this story is headed. Yeah, that's exactly right. I just don't see how you can say some of the things about the Gospel of Mark that some people try to say it is... Uh, to put it a different way, it's just so clear that, in a way, the two opposite extremes of the Gospels, Mark and the Gospel of John, are telling the same story about the same person. Well, that wraps it up for our interim episodes here. In our next episode, we will begin our next series, and the topic will be... Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> the topic will be uh, much to John's consternation the, pro <laughs> the problem of evil evil yes this is a perennial question from believers and non-believers alike if God knows what's happening to us and if God is powerful enough to fix what's wrong and if God really does want only good for us why does God let all the terrible things happen that do more broadly, how do we account for the bad things that do happen? 
How do we do that without blaming those we shouldn't, without raising false hopes, and without saying something about God that's not true? So that's where we'll pick up in the next episode as we head into that next series. For more information about this podcast and our other activities, please see our website at orthodox.faith. That's O-R-T-H-O-D-O-C-S dot F-A-I-T-H. And thank you for listening. 